Hello and welcome. I'm your host, Alex Housen, and this is Right Medicine, a weekly podcast that explores best practices in creating content that connects with and educates health professionals. I'm a former nurse and an academic who spent the last 16 years as an independent medical writer and researcher, creating and evaluating education content for health professionals. If your work involves planning, designing, delivering or evaluating education for health professionals, this podcast is for you. This episode of Right Medicine is brought to you by Next Level Needs Assessments. By the end of this six-week program, you'll be able to evaluate the anatomy of an effective needs assessment Recognize the function of needs assessments in the continuing education planning cycle, identify clinical practice gaps, craft actionable learning objectives and describe anticipated learning outcomes. A course-specific toolkit provides everything you need to create a needs assessment for your portfolio. You'll practice each element of preparing a needs assessment step-by-step and have access to two sessions of one-to-one coaching with me personalise written and verbal feedback on your work, as well as structured discussion with your peers. The programme runs April 3rd to May the 12th and spaces are limited. Check the link in the show notes for more information or contact me via email or LinkedIn for details. Hello and welcome. I'm Alex Housen and this is Right Medicine. Angelique Winter is a data and outcomes consultant with a background in marketing. She recognises the close connection between the marketing sector and the outcomes side of continuing medical education and continuing education, since both require analytical skills to assess user benefit, behaviour, participation and survey fatigue. In today's episode of Right Medicine, we talk about best practices that education providers can use to evaluate the effectiveness of their continuing medical education programs and how to use these outcomes to inform decision-making. We explore solutions to education providers' main challenges in developing robust outcomes frameworks, like establishing an efficient process that allows time to evaluate the quality of feedback and think creatively about activity design. Join us. Hello and welcome. This is Right Medicine and I'm your host, Alex Housen. And I'm here today with Angelique Winter, who is an outcomes, uh, data and outcomes consultant with a special focus on analytics and reporting. Welcome, Angelique. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here. Well, let's start with just telling listeners who you are and what your work currently involves. Right. So, um, like you said, data and outcomes consultant. I currently am um, kind of private consulting with a variety of clients and helping them with a you know variety of different things that fall kind of under outcomes. So helping design their templates, or you know helping just meet their reporting commitments, or bigger things like kind of helping them develop their outcomes program, where they're looking at the grant language, how they want to you know frame what their outcomes deliverables will be, how they want to collect that data. How, what their, you know, methodologies are going to be for analyzing and then, you know, how they want to present that in their reporting. So sometimes it's, you know, one piece of that and sometimes it's kind of several pieces of that spectrum. We're going to dig into some of those pieces in a moment. But first, could you talk a little bit about 
I always like to ask people how they ended up in the CMECE world because it's it's a little subterranean. Yeah, and and people do tend to fall into it. I haven't heard too many people say that they've been like working towards this their whole career, their whole uh, <laughs> education, or something like that. Never. <laughs> so I've always been interested in a lot of different topics and hobbies and areas of study. I studied environmental science when I was in college, and that was actually part of the interest that gravity, you know, pulled me towards that study was that it was interdisciplinary. So I got to study a lot in poli-sci courses and in the science courses and even a lot of literature. And I just always liked having that variety. That was a big importance for me. And I don't know, I never could relate to people that just had that one thing that they loved and they knew from an early age that they loved it and they were just completely 100% immersed and focused on it. So in that sense, I've always been more of a generalist. And when I started my career, I went into marketing and more on the data side, less on the promotional side, but you know, they kind of bleed together to some extent. And I did marketing for a number of different industries, including like publishing and a tech startup, things like that, that kind of primed me when I was originally hired at a medical education company to help them launch one of their products. And so from that point on, I was working in the marketing department on, on the data and reporting side. And our outcomes program just kind of grew over time out of, out of the data that we were already working with and the reporting we were doing at the time. I'm curious about that connection between marketing and outcomes. Could you talk a little bit more about how those two kind of entities talk to each other in the context of CME? So yes, absolutely. It's a good question because I actually think outcomes touches a lot of different processes or departments within the process of, you know, building the education. But marketing is a key one too, because they're, they're reaching the target audience and you're really wanting to show that in your outcomes report Mm -hmm. that you're educating the right people and things like that. So, you know, the way they're looking at their distribution, the way they're looking at their segmentation and how they're achieving that target audience reach is, you know, a big part of what you sort of talk about with your outcomes as well. And like I said, I was kind of more on the analytics side. I was more looking at user behavior and things like that. It makes me particularly sensitive to things like attrition and survey fatigue, for example. You know, anytime we're giving a lot of a lot of questions, throwing a lot of questions at those learners, you know, I've looked at the the backend data and I can see how every time you're asking them to answer, every time you're asking them to click, every time you're asking them to take another action, it is a point of attrition. You're losing a little bit. So as much as I want all the data I can get from that analysis side of me, I'm also very sensitive to how we ask those questions and how many of those questions we're presenting them and how meaningful those questions are. So my saying is always only ask a question if you really want the answer. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I think that that's not necessarily happening with some of the um, medical education companies. They're just, you know, they're trying to be efficient, right? And they're looking for solutions that are scalable. So they build an evaluation form, for example, and they want to use it in every single activity that they do. But sometimes those questions aren't well aligned to the audience of a particular activity. So I'm a big advocate for making sure we're asking questions of that audience that we want the answer to and that we can use to tell our story in the outcomes presentation. Can you give an example of questions that people like to ask, but aren't necessarily need to knows, they're nice to knows. 
Yeah, absolutely. So I've definitely seen, and a lot of these, like I said, get tend to get buried in the evaluation form mm-hmm. as opposed to like maybe some of the pre-post polling and things like that. Those tend to be more relevant because they're, they're aligned to the learning objectives and things like that. But in the evaluation form, because they do tend to just kind of build a form and then populate it over many activities, sometimes they'll ask questions that I think would be better served in like a survey to their learners, like once or twice a year, Mm. like things about their interests, right? Like how they like to consume content or, you know, how they use some of the, you know, downloads that are offered. If there's resources or PDFs that are being provided, things like that, you know, and and I think that's that's a fine question to ask. It's not that it isn't interesting. It just probably doesn't need to live in a space where it's being presented every single activity. We've done some work around ways to ask questions around barriers or intent to change. But I think people get really overburdened with qualitative, you know, like open field data where they get to volunteer their answer. And so instead, they, you know, populate a number of multiple choice or check all that apply options, but they're very generic. And so we collect the data and we'll report it, but it's not really, it doesn't become part of the conversation and it doesn't become part of the texture of that story. And so in that sense, I feel like it's sort of a wasted question because we're not, we're not leveraging it in any way. So I want to pick up on something you said there, just to make sure that I'm clear that I understand what you said when you were talking about people getting overwhelmed with, you know, open-ended questions. Are the people getting overwhelmed the people answering the questions or collecting the data? Oh, I meant the analysts. Yeah, that's a good right, question. Right. So yeah. when you ask an open-ended question, you're going to get, you know, a fair amount of people who just sort of opt out of that opportunity by giving, you know, an NA or, you know, some kind of filler feedback. And then you also get, you know, a lot of people who give you lengthy responses and some are more relevant than others, obviously. And it's just one of those things that has to be analyzed by human eyes, like kind of looking through it and like figuring out which of these responses are relevant, which are going to be relevant to this particular therapeutic area that we're educating on too. Because, you know, just because you work in psychiatry or GI doesn't mean that this particular topic is the only one you're interested in. So learners will take the opportunity to give feedback on like a wide variety of interests that may or may not have relevance to the topic that you're reporting on. And so all of that context and all of that, like kind of reading through the feedback that you get can be very time consuming and can be overwhelming for the people on the analysis side. Yeah, no, 100%. I, I'm a qualitative researcher. So, uh, you know, I, I'm familiar with many of the tools that you can use to help you do that kind of analysis. But even with, you know, computer assisted data programs, it's still very time consuming to make sure that you're thoroughly reading, that you're getting the meaning, that you are, you know, kind of coding and tagging appropriately. So I, I was, that was a bit of a tangent, but I was, I was curious there. And it's one of the things that I do hear a lot from people in terms of, you know, we want to ask open-ended questions, we want qualitative data, but then what do we do with the data? We don't, you know, really know how to, to handle that. Yeah. And there are definitely methodologies for that kind of data, but it's not as widely used in our space. I think it's not something that tends to get discussed very often either. And so I think what people end up doing is just parsing for some quotes here and there. And those are really valuable too, like not to discount like actual direct quotes, but I think a lot can get lost in the volume of response feedback that gets kind of put aside in, in the pursuit of just like those couple sound bites, you know? Oh, I agree. A lot of that data is very rich. So you've, you've been in the industry a reasonable length of time. 
and worked with different providers and, and you're an independent. How would you say the role of data and analytics has changed over the last 10 years or so? It's changed a lot since I started. So like I said, I started in the marketing group, but we were kind of the keepers of the data already. So it kind of naturally fell to us to produce these, you know, they were basically quarterly data. I would call them almost outputs more than, you know, like a report or an outcomes presentation. And it was just level one, level two data, which I, I don't know if I should give some context around, you know, Moore's levels of participation and, and eval satisfaction data. We can make sure to, you know, include some some language there in the in the show notes, but just kind of flagging okay. up here that when you are talking about levels, you're talking about Moore's outcomes framework. Moore's levels. Yeah. So, you know, that was it, at the medical education company I was with at the time. That was kind of the process of just generating on a quarterly basis participation and evaluation data and spitting these outputs. Because that was all that was really being looked for at the time. There just wasn't a lot of focus on it. And they're just much more elaborate now and um, more visually engaging, which I think is great, and uh, more of a presentation than just a report. Mm -hmm. There's a story element to it. There's a visual engagement piece of it. And so I think that they're much richer than they were before, but that comes with challenges too. What kind of challenges? Time is a big challenge. <laughs> the time to put them together, you know, I mean, it's it's a much more almost bespoke process of really mm. looking at each activity and what was the intention there and putting, you know, context around the data and, and giving them something to connect it to that isn't just a, a metric kind of sitting on the page, right? Mm -hmm. I think for my purposes and, and what I tend to advocate with all of my clients too is when they're building their review process for, you know, how they're drafting their reporting is to really lean into a collaborative approach and, and make the, the argument to the other departments that are involved in building these programs of why that approach is needed. So I'm very experienced in survey design and data collection methodologies and reviewing, you know, question items and knowing where to place them in the content so that we can get the, you know, the best capture of data and things like that. But I'm not a subject matter expert, and I wasn't probably the one that was designing why we picked a certain type of modality for this content. And that sort of input can be really valuable in telling the story, like why did we use this format and what was that you know, meant to communicate to the learners or how was it supposed to help reach them better and things like that. And that can really get lost in a long production timeline, right? So yeah. by the time you get to the end, right, where it's time to put the data together, the reasons for all of that stuff, you have to go back to the original people that put that together and really talk about like, okay, well, what was meaningful here? Because you don't want to lose that in the report either. If it just, like, let's say you have a complex curriculum and there's a number of activities and they've launched in kind of a staggered formation, just dumping a list of activities into, you know, here's all the components of this program doesn't really tell the same story as how you use that, you know, feedback from one activity to be kind of formative in the future content of the later activities. So one of the things I did want to ask was, well, there's a couple of things there. What's your sense of, you know, you talked about Moore's outcomes framework. What's your sense of, you know, how widely spread that is? I mean, it seems from my perspective, you know, on the writing and, and research end that, that it's pretty widespread, or at least people talk about it fairly widely within the field. 
But you get, because you work with different people, you get to see what kind of outcomes frameworks education providers are using. So what's, what's going on in the field? What are you seeing? I think that's very common. Yeah, especially from a reporting standpoint, too, because there is a nice kind of linear logic mm. to the way Morris is designed. So from a reporting standpoint, it's kind of nice to organize the data that way, too, of this is who came and here are the demographics that we know about them. This is how they felt about, you know, the content. And then, the, and then we get into threes and fours of this is actually what they learned. And then into a little bit more, of, well, from the medical education side, there's, you know, when you're getting into five and six, like some of that ends up being more subjective or self-reported mm-hmm. or based on follow-up data that you have to collect, you know, later down the road and things like that. But I do like the organi- the kind of linear organization of Moore's. And I think it's pretty widely used that way too. But I also know that people that are coming into medical writing from, you know, other fields and things like that may not be as familiar. So that's why I kind of wanted to make a point to define it. I've also done a lot of training for people that are coming into this space, either as people that are developing content and writing question items or people that are doing the kind of work that I do where they're putting reports together and they're learning how to analyze the data and organize it. I'm glad you did talk about it to give that context. Are you seeing other evaluation frameworks? I know that, you know, Kirkpatrick's model is is a model that, that some providers use. Do you see that much? Are you seeing other models being used in the field? I haven't seen a lot of it. I do, you know, we just talked about kind of coming back from the Alliance annual meeting and things like that. And so I think it gets talked about a lot in, in different sessions. And I think there is probably an opportunity to incorporate that more. I like the discussions that people are having around it, but in terms of what actually happens at the time that they're collecting, organizing, or reporting the data, I feel like the Moore's model is still the most prevalent organizational kind of model that I see being used. And there's a kind of there's a kind of unification or a kind of unity there in using that model, you know, across different programs, across different providers. For a long time, the field didn't really have a standard or a commonly used model. And we reached a moment now where a lot of people are talking about a unified or a standardized outcomes framework within the field. What's your perspective on on that? It, it, it comes with its pros and cons, I guess is what I would say. I think that the effort is and, and the intention of it is really great for our space because it is difficult, I think, for people to know how everyone else is defining their metrics, especially when everybody has different platforms that they're using. Mm-hmm. And from the back end side of that, when you're just kind of looking at the data and where it's it's pulling down points, like important points of when did they reach actual content? Okay, now let's call them a learner. You know, like when did they answer this question? Okay, now let's call them, a, you know, like a completer, or, you know, hitting the end of the content or when they do the attestation. So I think that it is helpful to have those types of definitions out there. But there's also lots of, like I said, different platforms and they have different capabilities. And there's also learning modalities that aren't really part of an LMS system. So when people are talking about using social media Mm. or different ways of reaching learners. And so there's, there's a helpfulness in terms of standardizing some of how we define the basics, but then there's a place where it becomes I guess a little limited in that it can't, or at least to this point, right? You know, the plan is for this committee to continue and continue developing definitions for things. So maybe we'll get there, but there is a limitation currently when an activity is designed to use a different 
format or modality and being able to then conform to a standard set of definitions. What kind of things are you seeing? You mentioned social media. What kind of approaches to outcomes measurement are you seeing among providers who who are using social media or, you know, something a little different that isn't part of a kind of standard LMS platform? Of course, to, yeah. to your point, LMS platforms are very variable in terms of what they offer, but yeah. Just on their own, for sure. Yeah. And then with the social media, I'm, I really like the idea of trying to meet the learners where they are, because I, again, from that sensitivity of, from the marketing perspective of, of seeing how hard it can be at times to push learners through a rigid LMS system. And it's just, you know, it, it's not necessarily, I think they're telling you with their attrition <laughs> that that isn't where they want to be to learn. And so I know that there's been some debate about how legitimate is, is social media as a potential conduit, right, for this data. And, and are people going to really learn from this and things like that? And I think that the early data is suggesting that they do. And just in the amount of participation that these, these providers are seeing, it's, it's being welcomed. And I just think that that's a really important way for us to move our field forward is looking for to ways to be flexible and ways to meet those learners where they are. That does present some challenges with like, what are the significant metrics in reporting that then and being able to tell that story. And I've seen varied ways that providers are, are deciding like what they want to report. I think that there's value in some of the basic metrics of, you know, how engagements, right? Like how many people came, how many people liked, how many people posted or retweeted, you know, and, and the rate at which mm. some of that stuff is happening. I think there's some value in that too, but I will, we'll have to figure out ways to go deeper than that initial data and look for probably in more the qualitative realm of like really like highlighting some of the feedback that you get and things like that. Yeah, that's what I was thinking, actually, because some of the qualitative platforms that are out there for data collection and analysis do allow, depending on which social media site you're using, but they do allow uh, retrieval for certainly publicly available data. And I guess if you're setting up some kind of private space on, on social media, that capability is there as well, so that you can kind of pull that qualitative data and really do a deeper dive into not only how many people are talking about topic X, but but what they're saying and what the sentiment mm-hmm. is around what they're saying. And I like what you said about, I am drawn to the idea that, you know, learning is social. We know that from, there's a fair body of research on on that now. And we we benefit when we're able to kind of participate collectively with others in the in the moment in sort of well, I guess both real time and asynchronously celebrating its 10th year as the premier online event for CME professionals CME Palooza will be back in 2023 with its spring and fall events so mark your calendars for Wednesday April 12th and Wednesday October 18th CME Palooza It's free, it's fun, and it's just plain fantastic. I did want to ask what you're seeing as best practices in outcomes measures and data and analytics collection and and reporting. What do you, 
I guess there's two questions. What do you recommend that providers use to evaluate the effectiveness of CME and CE programs? And and what do you see as best practices? So from a best practice perspective, I think that my advice would be the best thing that you can really do is start thinking about it early. Because I think that the, I mean, I wouldn't say, oh, always use a p-value or always, you know, measure effect size. Like, I, I don't really think that that's particularly valuable when you think about the diversity of activity formats and design and, and platforms and things like that. So those can be helpful benchmarks and they can be useful analyses some of the time. There are other times, depending on the design, that other types of, you know, maybe leaning into more qualitative feedback or things like that would be more useful. I think that it's important for for providers not to get too hung up on things like a large end value. Like you have to have a ton of people do something in order to be able to demonstrate the magnitude of the value of the education. So I, I think it's important to be flexible. And the best way I think to think about a best practice is starting thinking about it early when you're designing and you're kind of kicking around, okay, this is the topic we want to cover and this is the gap that we've identified. And, you know, what is the best learning modality, you know, for addressing that? And given the content that we're going to put together, you know, what kind of format do we want? I think that's the time to start thinking about what sort of data can we collect in these different formats and what's, what's possible, right? And because that tends to not be as much of the discussion in the earlier phases, I think that at the end of the road, then people kind of just lean into those tried and true, like, oh, we just want to see a big end value and a big, you know, a low pre and a high post and, you know, that kind of stuff. But I think that can be sort of limiting, even for the people doing the analysis, it can be kind of limiting when that's all that's available to you, because sometimes the activity could have been better served, measured differently. And sometimes it seems, or at least, I think, you know, I've seen this on the writing side of things. It seems that especially larger providers do have their tried and tested approaches that they, it's almost a kind of plug and play. Mm -hmm. And so there's that trope of, you know, begin with the end in mind, but sometimes that end is, it does always seem to be the same. We're always looking for the same kind of outcome versus what I'm hearing from you is a more nuanced approach, which actually begins with looking at what's going to align with and meet the needs of this particular group of learners, this particular learning activity for this particular topic. Well, so when you talk about that plug and play kind of format, that is a reflection of them having thought about it at some point, right? So they worked up their their process, they selected an LMS, they developed, you know, a data collection plan and a methodology, but then it became this scalable solution that they started using all the time, right? And so what I'm suggesting and kind of advocating for when I talk to my clients and things like that too, is it's fine because a lot of us have a lot of work to keep up on and things like that. It's, It's fine to have those things established. But when you want to keep moving things forward and you want to keep finding ways to be dynamic and to, you know, to think about the learner and what they need and what they want and how that changes over time and how the demographic is shifting among clinicians, you know, then use some pilot programs as an example, you know, as an example of you can't be thoughtful maybe about every single individual activity if you have a lot going on, but pick some opportunities where you can be creative and pretty soon that might become then something that becomes a standard and it just expands your offering. 
So in the beginning, maybe it's a pilot and a one-off, but you learn from it and you develop some processes around it and establish, you know, what you want your metrics and your analysis to look like. And then that becomes one of the offerings instead of just, you know, the single way that, that some providers are working. Oh, and I appreciate that you, you took that plug and play because I think I wasn't implying criticism, but that could be- definitely be inferred. Oh, for so, sure. so I'm, I'm glad that you actually picked that up and teased out that distinction because I think that's really helpful for, for listeners. Can we talk about the distinction between formative and summative outcomes and when, you know, the kinds of scenarios where either of these approaches might be valuable? Yeah, absolutely. So I think from, um, like I said, my, my um, experience is more on the medical education side, but I know that there are lots of different types of providers. And so there are opportunities for how they use either one or both can be different. I think on the medical education side, it can be difficult at times to employ formative assessments, especially if you're thinking about using them kind of in a longer running curriculum and kind of using that feedback to help inform content in future activities or, you know, future interventions, because you don't have the same captive audience that you do, say, if you're, you know, doing the education for a facility or something like that. So there can be some limitations with that, but I've seen it used in kind of a a longer running, like a staggered release of of curriculum activity, you know, Mm. multiple activities. I have seen it used and it can be really helpful. and, And I think it's great to get that kind of feedback from the learners as you're going along so that you can then, you know, work with content and faculty to, to form things out in the future or address questions that maybe the first activity left, you know, left people with some questions. And so let's talk about those questions the next time, you know, we interact with them. The difficulty can be, you know, do you get the same people once the second activity or the third or the fourth are released? So when you're trying to match that back to the earlier respondents, that can be kind of tricky. So I think that that is where a lot of mechs tend to rely on the, the summative mm-hmm. version of just at the end of it all, you know, give us the feedback on what you think. And you've talked a little bit about, you know, using outcomes reports to inform future direction for education programs and, and activities. Can you talk a little bit about what are some of the things that education providers can do to, to really use their outcomes? results to inform decision-making? I think that that's kind of the key role of what an outcomes report should do. I mean, it, it is going to talk about how the program performed in terms of, you know, did it get the right people and enough people and all those types of things, and then demonstrate what sort of learning happened. And I think that's all, you know, obviously a very important part of it. But getting that feedback and looking both in the quantitative data of where you can see some persistent needs or, you know, some stubbornness to, you know, move into thinking about, you know, certain therapies for patients and things like that. So definitely using the quantitative data, but also the qualitative feedback can be so valuable. Again, if we think more about how we design our evaluation forms and when we're collecting that that summative data, like what do we want to hear back from them and how can we really use that in, in the story and in the presentation of what should happen in the future. Sometimes I think, again, we look for scalability, right? And efficiencies. And so we ask things in a way that, you know, works at the time. And then we don't stop to think about how it's going to work in the future or how it's been working because we've had it that way for a decade or more. So like one example, I guess I could think of is when we're evaluating the faculty presenters, right? We ask 
frequently as just sort of one to five Likert scale question about how well they thought that the presentation, you know, the content was presented by the faculty member. And one way to kind of change that up is to say, give it an open field response and ask the question a little bit differently. You know, what's one word you would use to describe the faculty Mm. presenter? Mm -hmm. And you're going to get a lot of garbage that way too, you know, stuff that you can't use or things, ways that people opt out of that question, but then you're going to get feedback that's useful and valuable. And, and you can think about different ways to ask questions like that for a number of typical questions on the evaluation. Mm-hmm. You've talked about some of the challenges that providers have in relation to outcomes, scalability, how and when to use, you know, qualitative approaches. What are some of the other challenges that you see? that education providers have in developing a robust outcomes framework and how can they start to think about addressing them? I think that they're getting pulled in a, in a few different directions, right? So there's, there's a lot of what can, what technical capabilities do you have, you know, given how you're going to collect data, how you're going to distribute the activity, et cetera. What if you have a grant supporter, you know, what kind of data are they looking to see returned? And then what do your learners actually want to participate in? You know, what do they want to do and how easy is it to sort of steward them through like a full activity with its questions and things like that? So, and then there's the tail end of now you're left with this big pile of data and you have to figure out how to organize it and and how to distill some sort of meaning and message out of it, which, you know, can be the challenge. And I think that's where some of my advice sort of devi- I, I'm, I'm a big fan of scalability. Like I, I want to find efficiencies. That's a big, big interest of mine is establishing a process that then can free people up to do other things. But what I think that they should be freed up to do is start evaluating things like qualitative feedback and think creatively about activity design and things like that. So it, it's what you do with that, that scalability and how that actually supports you and being more bespoke in other mm-hmm. other things, other pursuits, you know, the next activity that you design, that kind of thing. So I think that I'm sympathetic to the amount of, you know, information that's coming back in and how those providers are, you know, then left with like, oh wow, we had data from so many different things and now we have to figure out how to organize that and present that in a way that feels cohesive and and useful. And sometimes in practice, what happens is that all of that information is handed off to the writer to make sense of it. Not all writers have an analytic approach to or might feel that they are they don't have permission to draw on their analytic skills because, you know, they're hired to write. What would you say to writers in particular or other people who kind of touch outcomes, who have a role in shaping the story and doing the analysis and the interpretation and and finding meaning in the data? What kind of counsel would you give them in terms of where to start and what should they be thinking about? So no one should be doing this in a vacuum is kind of my advice. And I've had a lot of success with actually having calls, like instead of just forwarding a deck that's been, you know, set up with the the data and here's the pre-post and here's what it looks like. And then, you know, asking them to make of it what they will. I think that having a call and I know nobody wants to have to schedule more and more meetings on their calendar and it doesn't have to happen for every single program or every single activity. But when there are certain things that were 
really specific or maybe different about what they were hoping to accomplish with that activity or hoping to be able to say at the end, I think it warrants the conversation. Mm-hmm. I've had a lot of success and, and sitting down for, you know, even 30 minutes with the content person or the person that is going to be the one actually presenting the results, like into the stakeholders and mm-hmm. things like that. And just, and that's a good opportunity too to revisit. Cause one thing I am also kind of aware of is how long ago it might have been that that person writing the content put that program together. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And so then to like bring your mind back to what was the intention at the time? What were the gaps that were identified at the time? What was the hope for this format at the time and what it could do and how it could be different? And so a 30 minute call to kind of rehash some of that and go through it together as a participation between the person who did the data analysis and the person who put the content together. And then even the person who's going to be talking about it, talking it through and presenting it. I think that can be really valuable. And again, I'm, I know that that can't happen every time, but anytime that it does, I feel like I learned a lot. Like I, I know a lot about the data and I know a lot about how we surveyed and how we collected it, how we analyzed it, but I'm not a content expert. And so being able to sit down with the writers and go through like, what is the meaning of this? Or like this question, you know, this question item didn't perform well and you can see some confusion in the data, but why is that? And being able to get that context back from them is so valuable. Maybe it was a situation where the faculty presenter wasn't as clear as they should have been about where the optimal answer was. Maybe it's a situation where there's just a lot of debate in the clinical space Mm -hmm. about what the right way is. So even if we're educating and we think we're being clear, there's, you know, there's a little bit of resistance to having that one optimal answer. Maybe they think that there is more of a variety of choices. And so just getting that back from the content expert is so valuable and how to frame those results for the audience for the report. Oh, that's really helpful. Are there things that we haven't touched on that are important and that you would want listeners to be sensitive to and aware of when thinking about the role of outcomes in moving the field forward in continuing medical education and continuing professional development? Yeah, I think, I mean, I I would say that the main pieces of advice that I would have when it comes to maybe designing your own outcomes program, your own collection methods, or, you know, your own template, right, for how you want to report these things Transparency is a big one for me. I'm again in favor of that. The efforts that the the OSP glossary is making in sort of defining things. But if you define things differently because you have some, you know, capabilities in your LMS that are different and they haven't been covered by that, you know, glossary of definitions, then be clear about how you're defining it. If you're using different kinds of platforms like social media to, you know, reach your learners, then be clear about what that means. And so I think as long as you're transparent, I feel like there's still a lot of flexibility in how you define the impact and meaning of, of your activity and your metrics. Using, you know, sound defensible methodologies. There's a lot of um, kind of extrapolations that are done lately when they're calculating like potential patient impact, for example, that's one I see a lot. Right. Where they're, you know, they're kind of taking an average number of, you know, from the respondents and then multiplying it over, you know, the total learner group, things like that. I think that that's fine to do, but I think that you want to be conservative in the way that you do that, you know, and be reasonable and sit back and look at that number and make sure it makes sense. Like the number of patients impacted should not be greater than the known universe of patients with that condition, right? 
you know, be reasonable about your extrapolations and, and again, be transparent about how you calculated it. So I think that that can be really helpful when people are first kind of like setting up or maybe adding a new way that they're analyzing mm-hmm. something and thinking about how do they want to define that. And then just really use it as an opportunity to highlight your strengths, right? So the outcomes report is a report. It has data. It should be, you know, organized and things like that, but it also should have an element of story and context. Mm -hmm. And it is your opportunity to kind of talk about if anything went wrong, be, be open about that, but then also use it as an opportunity to talk about what went right and really like talk about, highlight those strengths of what what you were able to do. I see people get a little bit hung up sometimes on, again, because we're looking for those efficiencies and and that scalability that they kind of start to rely on things looking a certain way every time. So they expect a low, Mm. a low pre or baseline score, Mm. and then they expect to, to see a really high post. And when that doesn't always happen, I think it's important to kind of step back and look at the clinical context for some of those things. Sometimes the first knee-jerk reaction is to say, oh, was there something wrong with this question? Or was there something wrong with the way it was pre- presented? And, and maybe, you know, maybe that is a problem. But I think sometimes the context needs to be considered too. So an example I like to use is if you see some baseline in the 50 or 60 plus percent range, is it a problem? Like, well, if we're talking about an oncology program and I'm a patient with breast cancer, And I have a one in three chance of walking into an oncologist's office and having them not know the optimal treatment for my particular circumstances. I think that's an unacceptably high risk. And that is a place that needs education. So is that too high of a, of a pre-test score? It kind of depends on the situation. And I think it's important to kind of step back and, and look at that data from that context too, because that can give us a lot of information that we would want to share when we're presenting that activity. For people who are interested in learning more about outcomes and how they're used in the CMECE field, do you have resources that you like to direct people to? For people that are learning, that are just interested in getting better at, at outcomes analysis? Yeah, or perhaps new to the field and are looking for some kind of introduction. You know, I've done a lot of one-off training as someone that was kind of building an outcomes team and things like that. And I can't say that there's any like specific resources that I usually direct people to. I often actually use presentations that came out of the Alliance. I think that there's a lot of, there's a lot of value in, in some of the, the how to Mm -hmm. sessions Mm -hmm. and we tend to do them pretty frequently, right? Which is helpful because there's always people coming into the field and it's new to them, right? It may not be new to the people that have been around a long time, but it's new to them. And uh, some of them are, uh, some of the decks are really great step-by-step tutorials on how to do certain things, how to, what an effect size actually means, you Mm. know, how to calculate a p-value, how to find calculators online that help them do that without having to build complex formulas in an Excel deck, you know, things like that. And anything else that we haven't touched on that's, that you want learners to know about, listeners to know about? I guess I would just say that it's really important to keep trying new things and that that is not always the easiest thing to measure or the easiest thing to report or demonstrate the value in, but taking risks and, and trying to meet people where they are and try new formats and experiment with the kinds of education that we're providing 
I think is really important. I think the scalability is useful and the efficiencies are incredibly helpful in our day-to-day. And it can also help us collect data that we can aggregate over time, which can be, you know, an opportunity for some exciting analyses and things like that. But taking just a little bit of your time aside to think about new ways and and not being so worried about, well, if I can't report it the same way that I've reported all of these other things, are we going to be able to say anything strong or useful about it? I think going into it, not knowing for sure how you're going to report it when you're first piloting something, you'll learn, you know, you'll learn what data comes back and you'll find things that you want to repeat and you'll find things that you want to try differently the next time. And if any, if everybody out there, all the different providers are just thinking once in a while, like some, some percentage of their time about how to do something a little bit new, a little bit different, even changing up the questions that they ask just to see what kind of feedback they can potentially get from learners that would be a little bit new or a little bit different. I think that that is incredibly helpful for, for all of us. A rigorous but relaxed approach. Yeah, I guess, yeah, that's a really nice way to put it. Yeah. Angelique Vinter, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom about outcomes with listeners of Fright Medicine. Thanks. Thank you so much for having me. If you're like me and see yourself as a lifelong learner who loves connection with other CME professionals, come and check out what Right Medicine offers in terms of community and courses. And I'd love to hear from you what you're interested in learning more about on the podcast. And if you like the podcast or a particular episode, consider writing a review on Apple Podcasts or share with your colleagues and peers. There's a link in the show notes to help you do all of these things. See you next time.